Welcome to Columbus Perspective, a weekly public affairs presentation of The Fan. I'm Dave James. In a moment, I'll talk with Scott DeMauro, president of the Ohio Education Association, about arming teachers and other issues Ohio schools are dealing with. In about 22 minutes, courtesy of our sister station, WBNS 10 TV's Tracy Townsend covers a number of topics. We are looking at what happened in Uvalde, Texas, and bringing it home here to Central Ohio. Our team of reporters is asking state and federal lawmakers the tough questions and the follow-up about what's being done to protect children in Ohio classrooms from a mass shooting. And I'll wrap up the hour talking with Michael Shields, a researcher with Policy Matters Ohio, looking at Ohio's economy. First up on Columbus Perspective on the phone with me, Scott DeMauro, who is the president of the Ohio Education Association. How are you doing? I'm doing well, Dave. How are you doing today? I'm good. Thanks for talking to us. Uh, how did the uh, the 2021-22 school season go for Ohio overall this year? Well, I tell you what, this is uh, has been a tough year. I had a chance uh, this spring to visit uh, probably two dozen schools around the state, uh, just checking in with our educators and education support professionals. And uh, I am very impressed with the way people have continued uh, with keeping learning going under some really challenging circumstances. But I am hearing more than I've ever heard before. Uh, people just feeling pretty burnt out. Um, there's a lot on educators' plates right now, you know, coming through the pandemic, and then you have uh, kind of a host of political attacks on, on teacher professionalism, and now you've got this recent spate of shootings that uh, really has a lot of people on edge, and uh, it's it's been a tough year. I think for a lot of people, uh, the summer break couldn't have come any sooner. I want to talk to you about this, uh, the gun situation in a moment. There was even, I don't even know if we're in post-pandemic or exactly where we're at right now, but there were even food supply issues in schools this past year, right? Yeah, I mean, food supply issues, uh, you know, we know even before the pandemic started that we have uh, significant inequities in terms of resources, that we have a lot of students that come to our public schools from uh, poverty and in many ways the pandemic just exacerbated those inequalities and so um, food insecurity is is a big issue for a lot of kids the only reliable meals that they have are the ones that they get at school and one of the things that we've been advocating for is an extension of free meals that uh, the federal government made available uh, during the pandemic but that's an issue and then speaking of shortages you know one of the things that's been a really challenging issue has been just a shortage of personnel um, we have fewer people that are going into education uh, more people thinking about leaving and it's particularly acute when you look at a significant shortage of substitute teachers uh, as well as bus drivers and cafeteria workers that's really put a lot of pressure on the people that are working in our schools you know when there's when there's not a sub in the building it means that the teachers who are there lose their planning time end up having to double up you know class sizes uh, increase and uh, it can pose a real challenge so yeah all of these things this this labor market uh, economic conditions uh, they're all combining together to really create a lot of stresses on our system. It seems like such a crazy world because, you know, it wasn't that long ago that even positions like bus drivers, uh, but teachers, uh, you know, letter carriers, all of those were jobs that people would scramble to get. And now, you know, some people aren't getting their mail every day because there aren't enough carriers. Yeah. And and with educators. 
indicators, I think there are several things that are happening. Uh, one is that uh, we saw the pandemic, particularly with, with people that were in vulnerable populations, uh, and especially looking at substitute teachers and some education support staff, that people just didn't feel safe, you know, being in schools. A lot of people left the, uh, the job force uh, for those reasons. And we also see on the other end that fewer and fewer people are choosing education as a career. And I think that's a, a result of a combination of factors. Certainly economics is at the top of the list. Uh, when you have somebody graduating from college, you know, who sees their peers making a whole lot more than they'd be able to uh, make as a teacher, you know, it causes them to think twice before going into education. And then you have years of education policies that have really suck the joy out of teaching and learning for a lot of people. Uh, Overemphasis on standardized tests, uh, and then most recently, over the course of the last year, you know, all these efforts at censorship, you know, at the local and state and national level, people in the community, I think, for political reasons, uh, who are in, in really national organized groups that are using education as a wedge issue and then calling into question the professionalism of educators, uh, which really have a lot of people feeling, hey, I, there are so many pressures coming down on me. I don't know that, that I can handle this. And so all of those things are, are there. And so for us as an organization, you know, we know that, that addressing the educator crisis shortage has to be one of our top priorities. We have to address those economic issues. We have to make sure that working conditions uh, in our schools are positive uh, because those are the learning conditions of our students. And we have to make sure that we have good support systems in place so that not only do we attract people into the profession and a diverse uh, teaching force at that, but also that we have good mentor programs and and support systems so that we really give our early career educators the support they need to to stay and be successful with their students. Talking with Scott DeMauro, he is the president of the Ohio Education Association. So last year, the Ohio Supreme Court ruled that teachers or school staff who want to carry a gun have peace officer level training, which is more than 700 hours of training. And now the Ohio legislature has passed a bill that Governor DeWine says he'll sign that will reduce that to 24. It's a real concerning uh, development this past week. And we know that this issue has been debated since that uh, Supreme Court decision was handed down. Uh, the Supreme Court, I think, did did rule correctly that the law, you know, did not carve out an exception for school employees when it comes to authorizing people to carry weapons. Um, and rather than taking a serious look at what are uh, the requirements that will be necessary to ensure that everyone in our schools is kept safe, uh, they really rushed through a uh, proposal that sets a very, very low bar at only 24 hours. Uh, just, just for context, you know, compare that 24 hours that the state has established as the most that can that the state can put out as a requirement. Now, districts can can do something different than that if they want. But in Florida, uh, where they have a similar law that gives school districts the discretion to authorize employees to carry weapons, they require 132 hours of training uh, in order to be certified to, to be armed in school. Um, a few years ago, I think it was in 2014, when Mike DeWine was the attorney general, 
the Ohio Peace Officer Training Commission uh, spent a lot of time studying this issue, and they recommended a standard of 150 hours. So we have said, you know, we, we don't think it's a you know, it's particularly prudent to ask teachers or other school employees to serve a dual role where they're both responsible for educating children and responsible for serving as armed security guards where they potentially might have to shoot one of their children uh, in a in a crisis situation. But if a district's going to do that, let's at least make sure that the training uh, is in place. Uh, you know, so we oppose this bill. Uh, the Fraternal Order of Police and law enforcement community uh, also oppose the bill because we know that if you're going to have people given that just such significant responsibility that involves life and death situations, we can't have people that are you know, minimally trained uh, working in our schools. That's just, that's just a recipe for disaster. It looks like in some of the polling that over the last four years uh, from a poll in 2018 compared to a recent one since some of these shootings that Americans are, are supporting the idea of teachers or at least some staff in schools having guns. Yeah, it's interesting to see that. I think I think some of that may be a reflection of, you know, the larger political polarization that has happened. And, you know, sadly, you see that any discussion about common sense gun safety measures, you know, has become polarized to the fact, you know, to the point that, you know, Mike DeWine, uh, after the mass shooting in Dayton a couple of years ago, came out with a series of proposals that included red flag laws and universal background checks uh, and immediately the you know hard right uh, side of his party and and the gun lobby came out against that and so now he's not even trying on those issues and I think that is a reflection of, of how uh, sides have become polarized on this issue um, if you talk to the vast majority of educators, they do not think that it's a good idea. Uh, I hear from our members that, that tell me all the time, there is enough on their plates. Um, they have so many things that they already need to worry about. Uh, they don't need uh, this as one more thing. Uh, and in fact, it's going back to the earlier conversation about teacher shortages. This is one more pressure that I think gets put on the system that makes it harder to attract and retain good people in our profession. Well, it, it's so interesting. There are so many different angles to look at it and, and comments that I've heard people say uh, in the media or otherwise, where somebody might say, if a teacher is going to lay down on top of one of their students to protect them from a gunman in the room, might they be better off having a gun? And then I heard a teacher in the Toledo area say, we have teachers in our school that will bring a cup of coffee into my classroom and forget to take it out with them. What are they going to do if they're responsible for a gun? And that's a that's a really uh, good question. Uh, in fact, I don't think there's any clear evidence that arming school personnel has done anything to reduce the incidence of school shootings. And if you look at what happened in Uvalde, Texas, you had... Uh, a significant number of well-armed law enforcement, law enforcement personnel that were on site almost immediately, and they, with all their training, still couldn't prevent the massacre of 19 children and two adults. Um, so how do you expect uh, teachers with minimal training are going are gonna to be expected to do better uh, in a crisis situation like that? On the flip side, you have 
uh, stories where a teacher is carrying a weapon or a school school employee is carrying a weapon and accidents happen. Uh, there was an incident uh, not too long ago where a gun was accidentally discharged into the ceiling and, and you know, thankfully no one was hurt, but, but it shows that those kinds of things can happen. Here in Ohio, uh, I think it was two years ago, there was a school employee who was authorized to carry uh, on campus, uh, had a gun, uh, left the room, and two young children uh, got a hold of that weapon. And again, thank God no one was hurt in that incident. But it shows what can happen when you introduce more guns into schools, uh, you introduce the likelihood of something bad happening. And I, and I don't think there's, there's clear evidence that it's necessarily going to prevent a mass shooting from happening. Talking with Scott DeMauro, he's the president of Ohio Education Association. Well, in my place of employment, I've been there for 27 years, and the only way I can get into the building is if somebody lets me in or if I use my key card. Is it easier to get into a school than that? No, that's that's really one of the things that I think has changed over the course of the last seven or eight years. Um, you can't find a school, at least a public school in the state today, that doesn't have all their doors locked, uh, single entrance, uh, requirement to buzz in and, and, you know, have to go through the office and, and demonstrate ID before going into a school building. Uh, our schools, in terms of, of physical security, I think are safer than, they, than they've ever been. And then the other thing that, that has changed over the last seven, eight years, and I think this is a sad commentary on, on our culture right now, is that active shooter drills have become as commonplace as fire drills and tornado drills. So, um, so there's a lot that's already happening in terms of, you know, what what some would call hardening of schools. You know, and, and doubling down on that strategy just seems to be, you know, a misuse of resources. What we'd rather see is an acknowledgement that. Uh, Given all of the challenges that our schools face, uh, and one of the things that's become you know even more clear coming through the pandemic, is that our students and staff have significant mental health needs. Let's make sure that every uh, school has the resources to provide for the needs of our students, not just academically, but also socially and emotionally, and in terms of their mental health support as well. So hiring more mental health specialists, hiring more counselors and social workers. And that's not to say that, you know, I'm not suggesting that anyone, that everyone who has per- perpetrated a mass shooting uh, has been mentally ill. That That is scapegoating people with mental illness, and that's not the case. But we know that there are significant mental health challenges that I think contribute to, uh, you know, the tension that a lot of people feel around school safety, uh, and we really need to be addressing that. And recognize that schools don't exist in vacuums, that making communities safer by enacting common sense gun safety laws like red flag laws, universal background checks, the kinds of things that Mike DeWine has advocated for uh, really will also make schools safer. Well, we've, uh, we're fortunately at the end of this school season, so uh, it gives kids uh, a break from this daily routine of going into the classroom maybe with some fear. But what would you say to kids who are fearful when they go to school or their parents who send off their 10-year-old and think, there goes my whole life out the door to school and I hope he's safe? Yeah, I, I think the first thing to say to kids, and, and, and 
uh, NEA, our national organization, has some great resources online. I'd, I'd encourage anybody to go to NEA.org uh, and check those out. But our students do need to be assured that they are safe with us. Um, and, you know, in the vast majority of communities across the, the country, uh, the school is going to be the safest place in, in their community. And that, that continues to be the case. Uh, these incidents, while they're far too common, are also still very rare. Um, but we understand that, that situations like this uh, really do uh, shake people. They shake, shake adults, and, and they really you know, shake, shake kids. And so it's also important that, that we allow, in, in an age-appropriate way, uh, students to express their feelings and for us to really listen to, to kids and know that they're listened. I think we also have a responsibility to, to make sure that we're very much paying attention to um, the social and emotional well-being of kids, uh, that we do not tolerate bullying, uh, that we recognize that students come to us from all different backgrounds, all races, genders, religious backgrounds, gender, gender identity and sexual orientation, regardless of students' background, they need to know that schools are safe, that there are adults there who care about them. Uh, and so, you know, providing that safe space for students to be themselves and, and to, to have the freedom to learn uh, is so critical. Scott DeMauro, he's the president of Ohio Education Association. Anything else you'd like to add, Scott? No, I mean, there's a, there's a lot going on. You know, of course, we continue to monitor uh, legislation uh, that would inhibit uh, freedom of teaching and learning about a full and honest education. And, and, you know, we continue to speak out against House Bill 616 and House Bill 327, which are these uh, censorship bills that, that have been introduced in the, in the House and the Senate. I'm really encouraged that, that our members and people across the larger community are speaking out uh, against those bills. Those are the kinds of things that would make this educator shortage crisis that we're facing even worse. Uh, because one of the things when I talk to my colleagues across the state. Two things that, that, that really drive them up a wall, regardless of their political leanings. One is politicians making decisions about education when they don't listen to the voices of educators and don't really have any edu education expertise themselves. And the second is um, anything that inhibits somebody from exercising their autonomy as professionals. You know, our teachers want to be able to do the jobs that they were trained to do, the jobs that they were hired to do, teach our standards, teach our curriculum, and, and provide that, that safe and supportive environment for our students. Um, people that go into education do it because they deeply care about, about the success of kids. It's time to lift up and respect and support our educators, uh, not beat up on them. So let me uh, just throw one quick uh, scenario out to you, and then you can dissect it, because I, I just want I'm curious about, uh, you know, where the uh, Education Association stands on it. These bills that deal with restricting or eliminating the talk of sexual orientation or transgender identity and such in the classroom, one thought is, uh, you know, this is not, none of the school's business. This is uh, me as a parent, my responsibility to inform my child the way that I want to. But on the other end, what if there's a, a 10-year-old who has two moms or two dads in their household? How are they supposed to explain that for their classmates and friends to understand it? And if a teacher is asked about it, what is the teacher supposed to do about it? Right. I mean, 
mean, I, I will say the legislation that's been introduced on this issue is written uh, so vaguely and so broadly uh, that it calls into question just where the line is and, and what would be allowed and what you know what wouldn't be allowed. Um, there is nothing in our standards or curriculum that um, says that that children are or should be instructed related to issues of gender and sexual orientation and things like that. Uh, and in fact, Ohio is the only state in the country that doesn't have comprehensive health education standards. And I think it would probably be more productive to sit down and decide, you know, what we think should be taught rather than uh, dealing with legislation saying that we don't want certain things talked about in schools and, and we don't want to put gag orders on teachers uh, written in a way that's really intended to instill fear and, and shut down conversations. Conversations. The reality is that we have students from all backgrounds. We have students whose parents and families, you know, uh, come in all varieties, and we have to make sure schools are safe places for everybody. So, um, so those kinds of censorship bills really serve no purpose, I think, other than uh, encouraging division and fear. They're divisive. They're not what Ohioans want. They're certainly not what our educators and students need. Um, you know, if, if we want to have a conversation about what are those standards, particularly in talking about health and development and things like that, let's let's have that conversation. Let's come to agreement as a state about you know what should be taught when. But that, that's not what this legislation does. It's almost uh, hard to imagine all of this uh, not getting even more and more political as the years go on, Scott. And that, that again is is I think contributing to the stress that educators are, are feeling. You know, uh, people go into this profession not because, you know, they're liberal or conservative or Democratic or Republican. They go into, they go into this profession because they care about kids. Uh, and unfortunately, you know, education has become so politicized and, and turned into, you know, uh, a tool for partisan uh, disagreement and that that's really demoralizing. People just people that I talk to who work in our schools every day just want to have the freedom to do the jobs that they were trained and hired to do. They want to be able to support their kids. They don't want the state getting in the way of that. Scott DeMauro, he's the president of the Ohio Education Association. Always interesting to talk to you, Scott. Thanks so much for your time. Thanks, Dave. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Courtesy of our sister station, WBNS 10 TV, here's Tracy Townsend from her Sunday morning public affairs program, Face the State. A new edition can be seen this morning at 1130 on 10 TV. Thank you for joining us this morning on Face the State. I'm Tracy Townsend. Ohio lawmakers pause for a moment of silence to honor the victims from Uvalde, Texas. The names and ages of all of the victims out of that Texas school shooting were read. As lawmakers were assembled, Republicans agreed to allow statements from both sides only if they were not political. Here's what was read into the record about the mass shooting. We cannot become complacent. We cannot forget. We cannot become desensitized to the fact that these murders and massacres and accidental shootings end up on our newsfeed each and every day. My colleagues, what we're doing 
is not working. What we are not doing is not working. This is not just a Texas tragedy. This is a human tragedy. And this is something that today, if anything, should cause us to come together in agreement and say that there are times when we cannot explain, we cannot fathom. This is one of those moments when we have no answers. There are 29 gun bills at the state house divided among Republicans and Democrats. Democrats want to repeal Stand Your Ground. They want universal background checks, and they want to raise the age to buy a gun to 21. Republicans are pushing legislation that would allow teachers to carry guns in a school and to also make sure no one needs insurance to own a firearm. 10TV's Kevin Landers asked the Speaker of the House whether Ohio laws are strong enough to keep children safe. Mr. Speaker, in the wake of the Texas shooting, there's a lot of attention on gun laws in our state. The question to you is, do you think Ohio has done enough to sufficiently protect the children in Ohio from a mass shooting? Are our laws strong enough? And do you think more needs to be done? So we are uh, constantly looking for ways in which we can uh, strengthen the security of our our school children. Uh, It's obviously a terrible tragedy. Um, There's some indication maybe there was mental health issues that weren't caught uh, in time. Uh, One of the things we have done in in conjunction with the governor is to expand the uh, mental health services that are available. In fact, we just had a bill today to help do that. We've added $11 million in the budget to be able to coordinate health care. Uh, we've passed legislation allowing strengthening the security in the, the school buildings. So we're constantly looking for ways in which we can do that. Now, this happened in Texas. It didn't happen in Ohio. I'm not sure you know, what their laws is, what their security setup is, but obviously uh, safety of children is foremost in our mind. Do you think the pink law should come back? I think it's pretty uh, uh, early to, to know what exactly happened on that, but uh, obviously um, looking at mental health issues um, and is, is something we, we should continue to do. Governor DeWine, the night of the shooting, he tweeted in part, quote, school safety and law enforcement intelligence gathering are key efforts within our Department of Public Safety, and we offer any assistance to Governor Abbott and Texas law enforcement that they may need. Here's what Democratic challenger Nan Whaley had to say in response to the shooting. They need to look in the eyes of the victims and the family members who have died, like in Dayton, and will happen again in another community because they are too cowardly, too unwilling, and too extreme to actually make changes. I've had it. It's time for something better. Ohio is not an extreme state. We're just being run by extremists. We talk with U.S. Senator Sherrod Brown and ask him what he's doing right now to make sure another tragedy like this doesn't happen again. I'm trying to reach across the aisle and pass something uh, strong that will make a difference. We know that 80, 90 percent of the American public says that an 18 year old should not be able to go in right after his birthday, 18th birthday, not allowed to lead to buy legal alcohol, can buy an assault weapon with no background checks, with no waiting periods, with no training and buy that assault weapon that can kill, as we know, can kill a dozen people in in, in a matter of seconds or a few minutes. 
Um, that's just wrong. 80 to 90 percent of the American public thinks that. Unfortunately, the gun lobby has a stranglehold on the legislature in Columbus and in the governor and on um, far too many members of Congress. And so we, we keep trying. But um, a lot of us have supported these laws for a long time, yet yet the gun lobby is so powerful. So many of my Republican colleagues get huge campaign contributions from them, um, and they've been in bed with the gun lobby for, for their whole careers. And we've got to fix this. 80, 90 percent of the public want us to. And Republican Senator Rob Portman tweeted that his heart goes out to the families of the victims and the nation mourns for the innocent children, teachers, and all those affected by this senseless act of violence. After the shooting, the mayor of Bexley posted a letter on social media. It was, he says, a letter for anyone who has held back what he calls responsible gun laws, creating this constant circle of violence. The mayor sat down with 10TV's Bryant Somerville. He was hesitant to talk, not wanting to make this about him. But his words. Tonight, I'm overcome with grief and anger. In many ways. How many times have we offered up impotent thoughts and prayers as our children are murdered in classrooms across America? A reflection of us all. This is Bexley Mayor Ben Kessler. After hearing about the events in Uvalde, Texas. I think back over the years, all the letters, resolutions that we have penned and signed. He put his thoughts to Facebook. I have so many words. And yet I have no words. And I sat in my office, frankly, I just sobbed. And I, as I was writing that, because it is such a tragic, tragic state of affairs in our country right now. Powerful words from a powerless politician. Frustration, he calls it, watching scenes like this play out while on a local level, he says his hands are tied to make changes, saying that has to come from the state level. But this, he says. How long will we be relegated to the sidelines, helpless to do anything to protect our children? Nothing to do with politics, everything to do with children. Not only do I fear for my kids' safety, I fear for their mental health. To the rest of us, as fruitless as it seems, as hopeless as it has been, keep screaming for peace. His post calls out a lack of action and the constant motion in what he calls the wrong direction from nationwide common sense gun laws. It just feels so obvious that we need to start to regulate guns in a sensible, sane way. An emotional plea to start this serious conversation, hoping these words will never again have to be said. May this be the last post of its kind that needs to be written. In Bexley. Hold your children close. Bryant Somerville, 10 TV News. Administrators in a central Ohio school district understand the fear when it comes to having a school shooter inside their buildings. Back in 2017, two students were shot inside of West Liberty Salem High School. Olivia Eugenio spoke with the district superintendent about the changes he and that district have made following violence in their halls. Outside of West Liberty Salem High School, there's a familiar site. A site that back in 2017 could have been for them. In our situation, uh, our student ended up having a full recovery. Uh, and he and, and turned out to be kind of a happy ending to what was a tragic day. And they're never going to get that happy ending. Well, it happened on January 20th, 2017. Inside the high school, two students were shot. One was point blank in the bathroom. Another was hit by a pellet from a shotgun. Do you still go back to that day? Yeah, very much so. Um, Today, you could just kind of feel a little bit of a weight on the staff here at school. Since January of 2017, Superintendent Craig Hissong says they've made several changes, including not allowing students to 
hang out unsupervised in the building before school starts. The district shooter was hiding in the bathroom before school. They looked into adding metal detectors, but found them to be too expensive and time-consuming to use every day. One thing they decided not to do, arm their teachers. We talked about that almost immediately after the incident occurred, and that was a something that our board talked about, our staff talked about. And uh, at the end of the day, we just did not feel comfortable with having a teacher armed. But the district did add a school resource officer in the fall of 2017. He is a deputy sheriff for Champaign County and works during the school day. It is at least a much faster response than what we would get if we did not have them here. And in a rural environment like ours uh, in a county school district uh, where a deputy could be 10 or 15 minutes away, it's very helpful to to have a school resource officer in the building. And that was 10TV's Olivia Eugenio reporting. You know, after the shooting in Texas, Columbus City School Superintendent Talisa Dixon had a message for parents and the community here. She included some of the safety measures the district is working on, including hiring 35 more safety and security staffers for the next school year, updating the visitor check-in system, and screening guests with metal detector wands when they enter extracurricular events. You can count on 10TV to keep you updated on any developments out of Uvalde, Texas. Look for continuing coverage at 10TV.com. Tensions were high at the State House. Lawmakers are hearing testimony on two high-profile bills. But in one hearing, two lawmakers went head-to-head, and 10TV's Brittany Bailey was there as things unfolded. These two bills have certainly stirred up controversy. One focuses on gender-affirming care. The other focuses on abortion. Outside, opponents of House Bill 454 wanted their voices heard. The bill would ban gender-affirming care for minors. Inside, lawmakers were hearing from those who support the bill. When the euphoria of the drugs and endorphins from surgery subside, they are still the same person on the inside with the same problems, only they are a shell of themselves, having cut off body parts in a desperate search to cut out the emotional turmoil they are experiencing. During that hearing, things suddenly got heated between two lawmakers. I'm very disappointed uh, in some of my colleagues here. Um, why? I'll tell you um, why. Please address through the chair. This is not the time or the place for direct confrontation between members. Everything needs to be addressed through the chair. Representative Click. Madam Chair, point of order. I have not made any comments about any other members of this committee. Not once. And it keeps happening, Madam Chair. spoke when you were asking Representatives. The committee will stand at ease. But we captured what happened after the feed dropped. House Rep Monique Smith vented her frustrations with Rep Jay Edwards. Down the hall, another set of lawmakers was hearing testimony from opponents of House Bill 598, the so-called trigger ban on abortion in Ohio. Let these people who can become pregnant instead live in self-determination. And let us together cultivate a society in which children come into the world under the very best of circumstances, each child a beloved and wanted child. And we had a brief moment to question the bill's sponsor. It is a necessary bill, and uh, we'll talk later about it, but right now i got to go back in committee. We will still keep tracking both House Bill 454 and 598 and bring you any updates. Reporting from the State House, Brittany Bailey, 10TV News.
A reminder, the hearing on House Bill 598 was only for opponent testimony, and then the hearing for House Bill 454 was for proponent testimony. We'll certainly keep following both to bring you both sides. The Ohio Supreme Court once again struck down the recent map submitted by the Ohio Redistricting Commission. The court had already struck down these same maps once before. It gave the commission a June 3rd deadline, but a federal court will likely order the state to use this set of maps for an August 2nd primary. That means the Ohio Supreme Court's decision could affect what happens in the years to come. Several lawmakers in our state talked about the growing fentanyl issue here. It happened in downtown Columbus. Attorney General Dave Yost was there, along with House Republican leader Kevin McCarthy and Representative Troy Balderson, who represents the 12th district. The group says border security is behind the rise in fentanyl overdoses in the United States. The bottom line is we know uh, that the drugs are coming across the border. It's not the only place, but it is the easiest place. We did reach out to Ohio Democrats for a response to this Republican event. They told us, quote, it's a shame Republicans have chosen to politicize this issue rather than working with Democrats to solve it. Statement from the Ohio Democrats. All right. Having a new baby. Boy, is it a stressful time for any family. Up next, we take a look at a plan by Ohio Democrats. They say will make it easier for expecting and new mothers. Plus. The newest initiative from Columbus City leaders and how it could impact your child's education. Columbus Perspective is a public affairs presentation of WBNS Radio. The opinions expressed on this program are those of its guests and do not necessarily reflect those of WBNS Radio, its staff, management, or sponsors. Back to Tracy Townsend, courtesy of 10TV. Welcome back. Here in Ohio, there is a bill to make breast milk more affordable. Right now, families can get a prescription for breast milk and then pick it up from one of Central Ohio's milk banks. But it's not free. Senate Bill 314 aims to have insurance companies cover the cost of medically necessary breast milk. For newborns, essentially, uh, their first two weeks of life, they take in about an ounce or two um, each serving. And mind you, they're getting served every two to three hours. So if you're a low-income family, that can really add up and low in, lower-income families can really struggle to cover those costs. And that piece of legislation is part of a series of bills the Ohio Democrats are pushing to help growing families, they say, including eliminating the diaper tax, creating an infant formula tax credit, and the Ohio Pregnant Workers Fairness Act. So as someone who just gave birth 12 days ago, I understand firsthand how it feels <laughs> to go ahead and birth during a pandemic, to give birth as a state senator, to give birth as a working parent. It's not easy. It was very, very difficult for me as being a woman of color. I was also subject to preeclampsia, gestational diabetes, and all the things that impact us women of color and mater maternal mortality. So, excuse me, another thing, too, um, with giving birth not only just recently 12 days ago but 10 years ago are a lot of needs that working families have. Um, also, in addition to pregnant workers, uh, Senate Bill 177 is one of those important supports for our new mothers and mothers-to-be, uh, which will also strengthen pregnancy accommodation and anti-discrimination standards here in Ohio, which is also going to be known as the Pregnant Workers Fairness Act. 
Columbus City leaders have officially rolled out a $1 million initiative, and it's all about making sure children know how to read by the end of the third grade. Organizers say in 2019, seven of 16 Franklin County school districts had third grade reading proficiency rates under 75%. It's why leaders say they're launching this program, which is called Success by Third Grade. One of the Columbus Board of Education goals is to strengthen reading proficiency. And success by third grade initiative will help us get there. Through an equity lens and a whole child focus, we are working together to remove community-based barriers that hinder academic success. Many kindergarten through third grade students in Columbus City Schools and throughout Franklin County are experiencing poverty issues at home and in their communities. Without question, these challenges impact student success. Children who are hungry, have unstable homes, or are dealing with social-emotional challenges are frequently off-track academically. Much of this is due to limited access to community-based support and services. This is why success by third grade movement is so important. All this advances upward mobility, and that is why Opportunity Rising, our plan to equitably promote prosperity and dismantle racism, prioritizes things like kindergarten readiness, youth engagement, workforce development. And experts say third grade reading levels are a top indicator of a child graduating from high school. Just a few weeks until fair season ahead, we look at how one law is helping keep rides and riders safe. And we have reaction from the mother who helped spearhead the movement. Hello, I'm Todd Markowitz, Vice President and General Manager of Radio Ohio, which owns 97.1 The Fan. We're an equal opportunity employer dedicated to providing broad outreach efforts regarding job vacancies within our company. We seek the help of local organizations in referring qualified applicants. Organizations that wish to receive our vacancy information should send their request to the attention of Human Resources, Radio Ohio, 770 Twin Rivers Drive, Columbus, 43215. If you'd like to view our current job openings, please visit our website at 971thefan.com and Thanks for listening. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Back to Tracy Townsend, courtesy of 10TV. A summer staple is making its return in just a couple of months. The Ohio State Fair will have rides for the first time since 2019. And this year, tougher rules they must follow because of Tyler's Law, which is all about improving the safety and operation of amusement rides. It's named for Tyler Gerald, who was killed in 2017 in a ride accident at the fair. Producer Angel Brock and I share how his mother led the fight for the law named in her son's memory. The moment that I was able to pick myself up off the floor. The moment, life-changing, as Amber Duffield learned her son Tyler was dead. She knew it was a call to action. The people that are injured are not going to be able to do that. Mm -hmm. Tyler can't do that. Mm -hmm. And this is unacceptable. In 2017, Amber's son Tyler Gerald was on board the Fireball ride at the Ohio State Fair when it came apart midair killing the 18-year-old and injuring seven others. Losing her son was a tragic gut punch. Amber says her son, in his own way, had prepared her. You left me behind <laughs> to make sure that this was not, was not in vain, that, that your, your sacrifice is going to do as much as possible 
to keep this from happening again. Ohio Department of Agriculture investigators combed the scene and determined the steel support beam on the fireball had excessive corrosion. Tyler's law is aimed at ensuring an accident like that doesn't happen again. It doesn't give us more authority, but what it does is it changes the procedure on how fatiguing corrosion is addressed. Dave Myron is chief of amusement ride safety at the Ohio Department of Agriculture. He says the regulations raise inspection standard levels and overall safety. My inspectors are looking at the ride as it's been set up to ensure that there's all the bolts are supposed to be there, that the lap bars are in proper working order. And then there's, with regard to Tyler's Law, um, that there's no signs of fatigue and corrosion on the ride. Tyler's Law adopts new American Society for Testing and Material Standards, collects information, creates a paper trail, tracking the storage or use of rides outside of Ohio, and specifies the frequency of inspections and number of inspectors who will perform those inspections. Ride owners must have documentation on hand with them for inspectors. If and when corrosion is discovered, the owner must call the ride manufacturer to fix it. Some of them are tremendously complex and have uh, huge electrical components. Uh, They have G-forces and and stress tolerance levels that are, are checked and verified by the inspectors. None of it will bring back Amber Duffield's son, but she says the rules are a reminder of what's at stake. This is to keep him alive and to keep the what all that was for and remind people and remind them. 10 TV producer Angel Brock asked Amber about what her son would think. Like, what do you think he's saying to you now? Well, I think he would say good job to everyone that worked on that because it was not just me. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, ha- you have to realize there were a lot, a lot of very dedicated people to making sure that we were doing, going forward as best as we could mm-hmm. uh, to ensure that this didn't happen again. And you can hear more of our sit-down interview with Tyler's mom at 10TV.com. Well, we certainly thank you for joining us here today and wish you a beautiful week. That's again Tracy Townsend, courtesy of our sister station, WBNS 10 TV. From their Sunday morning public affairs program, Face the State. A new edition can be seen this morning at 1130 on 10 TV. At Social Security, we are always thinking of ways to save you time and make things easier. That's why we created My Social Security. Opening a My Social Security account gives you secure access to your personal record and interactive tools tailored for you. You can see if you are eligible to receive benefits, view spousal benefit estimates, and compare retirement benefit estimates at different ages or dates when you want to start receiving benefits. Already receiving benefits? Use your account to change your address, set up or change direct deposit, get a proof of income letter, and more. In most states, you can also request a replacement social security card. Save time, go online. Open a My Social Security account at ssa.gov slash myaccount. Social Security, securing today and tomorrow. Produced at U.S. taxpayer expense. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. 
Hi, this is Dave James, and joining me on the phone is Michael Shields, who is a researcher for Policy Matters Ohio. How are you? Doing well. Glad to be here. Thanks for talking to us. Tell us what Policy Matters Ohio is. We are a research and advocacy organization. We work to create a more vibrant, equitable, sustainable, and inclusive Ohio, uh, basically to build an uh, an Ohio economy that works for everybody. And is it fair to say that Policy Matters Ohio is more liberal than conservative? Sure. Progressive. Yeah. Okay. And uh, you are out with a report uh, looking at Ohio's economy, how it has progressed since the pandemic kind of knocked things down, and uh, how are we doing? Sure. So we look at the Ohio jobs picture every month. Uh, We're doing pretty well. Ohio is on track right now to recover the jobs that we lost to COVID-19 by around the end of this year or the start of 2023. Uh, We're still missing about 140,000 jobs, but we're making really good progress. And the progress we're making has been uh, much faster than the recovery from the Great Recession. Uh, That took more than seven years to recover uh, lost jobs. And and when we account for population growth, we actually never fully recovered um, before COVID-19 really set us back again. Um, So we're doing a lot better. I think there are a few reasons for that. Many businesses had only hit pause Um, for Governor DeWine's stay-at-home order to protect public health. So once it was safe to reopen, they were ready to get back to work. Um, But, you know, the the other major difference between this and and the Great Recession, again, this has been a much more rapid recovery uh, up to date. Um, And and the other driver has been the public policy response, especially from the federal level. Um, You know, Congress passed historic levels of fiscal stimulus to sustain people through the crisis and to restart the economy. Uh, You know, we saw direct payments to families and and an expanded child tax credit. Uh, We saw extended uh, unemployment benefits that covered people who were normally excluded, plus um, increased benefit levels uh, and and billions of dollars in funding for state and local governments. So, uh, you know, policymakers, at least at the federal level, seem to have learned a lesson uh, from the Great Recession that austerity really exacerbates recessions. And the government has the power uh, to both protect people from economic crisis and to, to restart the economy. Well, some Republicans, including Ohio Senator Rob Portman, say that Congress dumped too much money into the economy, and that's why we have inflation now. So inflation has been caused by a couple of factors. Primarily, of course, it started um, because of the disruption caused by COVID-19 itself, right? Uh, COVID-19 disrupted the supply of consumer goods and of the components to make them at the same time that it shifted people's buying patterns uh, away from services and towards buying more goods. So people did things like cancel their gym membership and buy a treadmill. Um, and, and we're seeing other you know, real causes uh, exacerbating this. Um, the war that Russia is perpetrating against Ukraine is pushing up the cost of goods by raising fuel prices. So there have been some real factors at, at the, the core of this. But one thing that we're seeing right now is that corporations have not simply faced higher prices and and passed them on to consumers. Um, They've actually taken advantage of the opportunity and raised prices even more uh, to boost their own profits. So the Economic Policy Institute looked at this. um, And inflation since the second quarter of 2020 has been caused by a a few different factors, uh, but corporate Profits have made up 54% of the increase in, in prices over that time frame, whereas um, you know businesses are facing higher costs. Uh, so non-labor input costs rose by about 38%. Uh, wages rose by about 8%. Um, but you know those those two factors combined accounted for less than half of the increase in prices 
corporations have really just taken advantage of the, the fact that, um, you know, we, we have had uh, supply disruptions at the same time that, uh, you know, folks were, were looking to shift the way that they, they bought things. Um, and, and they have uh, increased prices far more than, than the increases that they have faced to their own uh, operating costs. And you believe that there should be a tax enacted to help offset that, right? Yeah, you know, this is really important. Um, it, it's, first of all, policymakers are, are rightly focused on reducing inflation right now. It's been high. Uh, it was at 8.3% in April. Uh, that was down a little bit from March, but it's still close to a 40-year high. Price growth at this level is really affecting people, and it has grown more rapidly than wages. So that's an, an important as well. Um, policymakers need to reduce inflation, but the question is how? Um, and there are a few tools that we have to, to do that. Um, but if we rely exclusively on the Federal Reserve to do it for us, the, the main tool that they have is to raise interest rates, and they, they do that to slow down the economy. Um, but the risk that comes with that is that it could slow or even reverse the jobs recovery um, that we've been seeing while we're still missing 140,000 jobs. And it'll take away people's bargaining power while wages, uh, growth in wages is still lagging behind inflation. Um, you know, so if we do it that way, working people are, are really the ones who are going to face the consequences, the adverse impacts of this. Um, the other way that policymakers can slow inflation is through tax policy. And, and one of the advantages of, of doing it through tax policy is that you can really direct the policy toward the economic actors who are driving uh, inflation and, and frankly, toward the, the folks who have um, more income uh, corporations in, in the form of profits are capturing a larger share of uh, uh, overall income uh, than, than they have historically. Um, so yes, um, we, we should uh, implement a tax in order to slow inflation, and specifically, policymakers should choose a temporary excess profits tax um, and uh, direct that toward the corporations that are really driving price hikes. And that would be aimed at what? Uh, companies that have a, a certain percentage of growth uh, above what would be expected or what? Sure. And, and I don't have a particular number in mind, um, but you know, I think the, the point is um, we have a number of tools at our disposal, and, and the thing that we, we want to use is um, policies that are directed toward um, that excess growth in profits, um, not in productivity. Of, of course, we're talking about um, you know, additional profits that uh, corporations have been able to uh, secure uh, through raising prices really substantially higher than what would have accounted for the, the increased costs that they have faced um, due to the global health, cri- health crisis. Talking with Michael Shields, he's a researcher with Policy Matters Ohio. Well, the state unemployment rate, was it 4% the last check-in? Yes. Okay, and do you expect it to go any lower than that? Or, or I guess it was, what, about 3.5% before the pandemic? Yeah, so it, it, this is a really good rate. Um, you know, we could see it continue to drop. We still have... Uh, we still have a number of folks who have not yet come back into the workforce um, after having lost jobs uh, due to COVID-19. Um, there, there are a number of factors that are still at play um, that are causing that. One major factor is that um, parents, um, mothers in particular, are still struggling um, to access uh, childcare. So, you know, we the the share of people who are out there um, looking for work is is one factor. Um, 
in the unemployment rate. Uh, this rate is pretty low, um, but again, we're still not quite back to the, the level of overall jobs that we had um, prior to COVID-19 uh, back in February of 2020. Uh, we've got about 140,000 jobs left to go, um, but we're making pretty good progress toward restoring those. We should get there right around the end of this year. Are you optimistic that the economy is going to remain fairly bold? Or, I mean, you know, it looks like there's just an awful lot of freight trains coming at us right now. You've got, you know, the war in Ukraine that's causing the the energy problems. We've got supply problems still. Uh, Farmers are talking about how fertilizer prices are going to go through the roof because of higher costs for petroleum. And it just seems like there's just one area after another that's going to be hard to fix. I think there are a lot of concerns. You know, um, one of the things that has really driven this rapid recovery that we've seen so far is the federal policy response. And, uh, you know, policymakers um, sent an unprecedented uh, amount of money um, directly to people and also to state and local governments. Um, A lot of that is um, either already uh, has either already ended or or is going to soon. Um, The American Rescue Plan Act, um, you know, the second tranche of uh, dollars for that is is being distributed right now. Um, But we have ended policies like um, enhanced unemployment benefits. Um, You know, we've uh, obviously ended uh, direct payments uh, to individuals and to to families, the child tax credit. Um, So, you know, those those things I I think are – they were really important drivers of, of early um, recovery, and, and the early recovery did proceed really rapidly. Um, I think the other concerns that we're facing right now are um, ex- exactly as you've put it, uh, with inflation. You know, we're um, we're seeing inflation both as a result of disruptions to the supply of goods um, to uh, to consumers um, and, and also the uh, inputs that, that firms are using when they're, they're making goods. Um, you know, we saw that at the same time that people really sort of changed their, their buying patterns. And I think for given that, you know, these are, are things that uh, will uh, start to normalize. You know, people are starting to go back to restaurants, for instance. Um, so I, I do, I'm confident that this will normalize, um, you know, over the long term. But I do think that we have some real immediate concerns uh, to get through and, and that they're, they're creating economic hardships for folks. You know, in, an inflation rate at 8.3% is really high, and it's, it's impacting um, people's ability to, to afford basic needs. Um, and also, I, I do think that, you know, that raises the risk of what is our policy response going to be? And if we're not careful about uh, what we choose, um, we could see our jobs recovery slow down. We could see wage growth uh, slow as, as folks lose their bargaining power to, to bargain for uh, higher wages as well. Talking with Michael Shields, he's a researcher with Policy Matters Ohio. Anything else you'd like to add? You know, I think just in terms of the overall um, economy, I'll say this. Um, this recovery is well on track, um, but policymakers risk slowing or reversing job gains if they try to reduce inflation by slowing the economy. Um, Corporate greed has been the the main driver of inflation in this recovery, Um, and policymakers really need to reduce corporate power, not working people's jobs in order to tame it. Okay, and Michael, if folks want more information about Policy Matters Ohio or or some of the research, uh, where do they find it? PolicyMattersOhio.org. 
Okay. Thanks so much for your time today. Sure appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. This has been Columbus Perspective, a weekly public affairs presentation of The Fan. Heard each Sunday morning at 6 on WBNS AM. That's 1460 ESPN Columbus. And Sunday morning at 7 on WBNS FM. Sports Radio 97.1 The Fan. Join us again next Sunday for Columbus Perspective.